Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I know it's been a little while. We were a little bit delayed getting our sort of post-Tour de France act together. I think everyone's a little bit tired. Everybody on staff is just a little bit tired. But we are we are back, and we're back with weekly episodes. We might even throw a couple extra freebies in for the Vuelta, some extra ones for Worlds, because it's happening in, well, kind of our neck of the woods in Australia. But... We're back with a regular episode, and I'm back with, I think, probably my favorite of all of the available crews. How you doing, Abby? The original. The original crew. You're <laughs> pretty close, actually. We're just missing shoddy, and then we would be, yeah, peak original crew. Well, I don't, yeah. if we really wanted to be the original crew, we, we would be recording in Neil's basement right now. <laughs> True. Yep, it'd be it'd be me, James, and Neil in Neil's basement. <laughs> hey, I did one episode in Neil's bas- basement. I brought chocolate chip cookies. Oh, I remember that. That's why we hired you. The chocolate chip cookies were really good. <laughs> they were delicious. Yeah, we were like, well, she's in, obviously. <laughs> Ronan, how are you? I'm good, yeah. We have our annual day of summer here, uh, so just trying to enjoy that. <laughs> so we should make this podcast as short as possible, is that what you're saying? Yeah, well... I got a bike ride this morning, so I've sort of had as much oh, as good. much sun as I can possibly handle for an entire year now. <laughs> Describe a day of summer where you live. What is this? What does this look like? Uh, it's it's very hard to describe because I I, I just can't find the words. There's, there's this big yellow thing in the sky. Uh, it's kind of circular. It, it emits loads of heat, burns your skin, turns your skin red. But interestingly, it's I, I can directly correlate the sort of um, aggression of drivers on the road, let's say, uh, to the heat uh, that we have in Ireland. Uh, I definitely notice on hotter days, uh, cars or drivers just tend to give us less room on the road. I don't know if I want to go down that rabbit hole or not, but it really struck me how it really upset my sunny ride this morning, just how many close passes I had. Interesting. Mm. I, don't, I can't say I've ever noticed the same thing here. You, you guys are acclimatized to the heat, you see. We are not acclimatized, so <laughs> <laughs> I think people just can't cope. That is very true. James, welcome back to the podcast. It's been, how, what was the last time you were on the podcast? Like six weeks ago oh, or it's so? Been, it, we don't tend to bring you on with a lot of bike it, racing It's been happening. since well before then. I'm, I'm not even sure how long it's been. It's been quite a while. It's It's been way too long, and mostly because you were neck deep in field test for a long time. Uh, for basically like the entire couple weeks prior to Tour de France. And now we're finally rolling that stuff out. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about in today's Nerd Nugget. We'll get to that in a little bit. But it's good to have you back. Thanks, Kelly. It's good to be back. It has been quite a while. Well, let's get into... Oh, oh yeah, we, we do have a we have an extra member of today's podcast, which is... How old is Lila now? She's three months on Thursday. Three months on Thursday. So she might just chime in at some point, as three-month-olds are wont to do. We'll she see. She definitely will. <laughs> Abby's just sitting. On a, are you on like a bouncy ball? What are you doing right now? You're just bouncing around. I'm on an exercise ball. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just going to say that the, the sight of Abby bouncing up and down with a kid in uh, a, a, a boba wrapper kid carrier thing, bouncing up, on, bouncing up and down on a yoga ball is definitely bringing back lots of memories from when my kid was an infant because we did that oh, a yeah. lot. We were just saying before we hit record that this is actually the Cycling Tips parenting podcast now and the four of us are just going to talk about our woes with our small children. <laughs> well, I mean, I thought that my back hurt. I thought my back hurt before I had a kid 
And then I spent like the whole eight days of the women's tour de France doing this for like five, six hours a day. And now I'm like, oh, so that's what back pain is. <laughs> uh, I think it's also just, we're all getting old. One day you wake up with back pain and you just have it forever. We, unfortunately, we keep talking, mm. Kaylee, I keep telling you every time you mention how old you're getting, I, I'm, I, I just have to shut you down because uh, I need to remind you that I am substantially older than all three of you by, by a lot. So I don't want to hear it. You don't look a day over 35. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> we have a sponsor of today's episode. Before we get into before we get into transfer talk and silly season and a big Burgos crash and some controversy over Mariana Voss's puppy paws position, we've got all that stuff to talk about. But before we do, today's episode is brought to you by Zephel. Travel differently during your holidays thanks to the bikepacking accessories range of the French brand. Zephyl, you can tell it's French because it has a little accent. Waterproof front bags, smartphone holders, frame bags, racks, saddlebags from 5 to 17 liters. Zephyl necessarily has the accessory that will fit your bike and your practice. Developed by cycling enthusiasts since 140 years ago, Zephyl products are designed, tested, and for the most part, manufactured in their French factory. Head over to Zephel.com, that's Z-E-F-A-L.com, to find your nearest reseller. And as an aside, my dad has a Zephel frame pump that I think is at least 45 years old at this point, and it works better than all the frame pumps that I have ever used. So if that's not a, uh, that's not a positive about French brand Zephel, I don't know what is. I was just going to say, Kaylee, that I used to use a Zephyl HPX frame pump when I first started riding, and I still honestly believe that it is the best frame pump I have ever used. Yeah. Oh, oh far and away. Like I, I've, I even, even compared to like the thousand dollar Silka one, which is granted a phenomenal frame pump, a lovely frame pump. Uh, the Zephyl one still wins for me. Maybe there's a bit of nostalgia there. But anyway, thank you to Zephyl for sponsoring today's episode. Let's. Get into it. First things first, we've got we've got a bike race going on right now. The Tour of Scandinavia, uh, which is, correct me if I'm wrong here, Abby, it's kind of like an amalgamation of a couple different races or races that have existed in the past. And uh, now it's a six-day stage race. And it relates to our next topic of discussion, which is Mariana Voss's Puppy Paws. But we're going to start off with kind of a bit of a mini preview of the Tour of Scandin Scandinavia. So, Abby, what's going on up there? Yeah, Tour of Scandinavia is kind of like the continuation of the ladies' tour of Norway that's been going on since, I believe, 2014. It, it's been going on for a while, won by such riders like Annemiek van Vluten last year, Anna Vandebregen has won it. Um, and it turned into the Tour of Scandinavia, formerly called the Battle of the North. Um, they announced in 2019 that they would become the Battle of the North and they changed the name earlier this year when Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, Probably but now. now it's, yeah, the, the tour of Scandinavia. So it goes from Denmark today. I'm, I'm actually watching, watching it right now. I don't care about you guys. The race is exciting. There's a lot of attacks going, uh, stage one started in Copenhagen today. And so stage one is in Denmark, stage two is in Sweden, and then the final four stages are all in Norway. The They are basically all sprint stages, it looks like. 
with some potential breakaway action. And stage five has an 11 kilometer long climb, which is the same climb that Van Vluten took the race on last year. So it's going to be six great days of racing. It's kind of like, I don't, I don't love how, when you try to get anything done in Spain in August, it's like, Oh, everyone's on vacation. But after the tour de France, tour de France fam, I'm like, can cycling just be like Spain and everyone be on vacation? Because it's kind of bonkers to me that we had the Giro tour back to back for the women's world tour. And we're already into a six day stage race. Um, which means that the, the riders to watch is, is really interesting. I mean, Voss is there, um, having just lost, uh, postnard Bergarda West Sweden because of the puppy paws incident. Um, but also Sile Utrip Ludwig is there for FDJ Suez Futuroscope, the Danish national champion who had an incredible tour de France and, uh, Demi Vollering, who also had a great tour de France came in second behind Van Vluten and who will definitely be the, the one to watch for stage five. All the stages are live on GCN plus and Eurosport. So definitely check that out. I wrote a preview on cyclingtips.com. It's a great website. You, you hinted at our sort of next topic of discussion here, Abby, which is the quite controversial, uh, disqualification of Mariana Voss for using the puppy paws position, which now over and over and over again, we have kind of called on the UCI to be at least more consistent in their rule application. And in this case, they were consistent in their rule application, and we are kind of annoyed about it. Can you explain what happened here? Yeah. So Lorena Wiebus was in uh, post Nord Valgarda, West Sweden, the one-day stage race on Sunday, which meant after her run of incredible sprints where she is basically unbeatable, everyone was attacking. There was just attacks flying like left, right, and center. And one of the riders that was the most aggressive was actually Mariana Voss, who is right now attacking in Tour Scandinavia. This is a great race. Y'all should watch it. Um, she was super aggressive all day and she ended up in a four person breakaway with Audrey Cordon Rigaud and two other riders. And with like 13 K to go, she did the puppy paws for three seconds. It was really, really short. I mean, unless you, are super familiar with the rule. I feel like a lot of people watching probably missed it. So then the race continued going. There was the sprint finish. Mariana Voss won. Audrey was second. 30 minutes later, while they were getting ready for the podium presentation, the commissaire announced that Mariana Voss would be disqualified for her puppy paws and Audrey Cordon Rigaud would win. And I think a lot of the backlash for that decision was that they didn't pull Voss immediately when she did it because it really impacted the race. I mean, Audrey now on paper has won a world tour one day, but did she really win it? Because she won it because the first whoever who was first got disqualified. So it kind of takes away from Audrey winning and it also, you know, looks bad for Voss. If they just pulled her at the moment that she did it, it, the race would have ended very, very differently. So I think that's where a lot of the backlash was coming from. And also the, the inconsistencies between the rule being applied, which I actually looked at it. And the rule is in one days you get disqualified, but in stage races, you just get a fine. So there is like, I think people didn't know that, but at the same time, the UCI still doesn't consistently implement it anyway. So yeah, 
I was going to say, like, it, it's their job to know the rules. Like, this is what they're supposed to do. It's true. Looking up. Hold on. Kaylee's fact check cornering me on the spot. No, I'm not fact check cornering you. I was, I was looking no, to see. No, you I should. Um, I couldn't remember what the gap was between the lead group and it was the, like the group behind. Like a couple wh- seconds. It was really, really, it was a really small gap. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I thought I recalled, which, which would then indicate that pulling Mariana Vosk, I mean, could have completely changed the race, right? Like it could have essentially ended the chances of that front group entirely, which makes handing Cordon Rago's Rago the, the win is sort of even worse, right? Like I'm yeah. sure that's not how she would want to win a race first and foremost. And if the commissaire is essentially allowed a disqualified rider to continue riding and therefore impact the race, because I mean, we know Voss is strong enough that she could have been the difference between that group staying away and not, then that that's sort of that's even more unacceptable, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem is them not pulling her. It's not that they disqualified her because she did break a rule. I mean, it is a rule. She broke it the rules say disqualification. It was how they implemented it is I, in my opinion, the problem and Voss herself, when she uh, was asked about it today before the tour of uh, Scandinavia, she said that it's a pity, but rules are rules. So uh, in classic Voss being the goat fashion, she didn't make excuses for doing it. She didn't say she forgot. She just was like, it's a bummer, but that's the rule. I think she. I think she did say that it was just a natural instinct to adopt that position for like a second. And as soon as she realized, she like got back up onto the the hoods. And you know, as as you said, up it was like three seconds. And that for me is like, it just seems so harsh that immediately as soon as she realized, and bearing in mind that you know Marianne Voss was racing for a long time before this band came in, and I, I th- just think of myself when you do a full gas effort like an attack like that. And you, you start your natural instincts sort of take over. And, you know, that's what we've seen there. She adopted the public wallace position, realized instantly this is not right. There's a rule against this now, got back out of it, and then, you know, was allowed to go on and influence the rest of the race. And as, you know, as, as we've all said so far, had she been pulled there and then, I think we would still, still would have thought it was harsh, but we could have you know, accepted it. But given that Marianne Voss was allowed to go on, influence race so much, cross the line with her hands in the air and then get disqualified half an hour later, you, you're kind of wondering like what what was going through the commissaire's minds in, in, in all that time, you know, for the final lap and then for half an hour after the finish, were they like, it's going to look really bad if we disqualify her, but we have to disqualify <laughs> her. Is there any way we can get around this? And it took them half an hour to realize there is no way around this. We have to disqualify her. And, yeah, it, it just a, a speedier decision could have made all the difference here. You wonder if it had been a different rider, if it would have been a speedier decision. But I wonder too, is we, we run into this sort of thing all the time with with racing and rules in general. Like like Ronan, just the fact that you're bringing up how uh, Mariana Voss has has obviously raced for a really long time. She's super seasoned, and she did seem to realize her mistake pretty quickly. Um, but the, the fact that you bring that up, like we're it, like emotionally, a lot of us almost want to make concessions for riders who we like, right? Like, like, like it, it, road cycling is often kind of like a sport of emotion, right? But I th- on the one hand, we oftentimes say that the rules aren't enforced rigidly enough, 
But then also there are a whole lot of people who oftentimes try to like make kind of like, you know, want to bend things a little bit just because like, oh, it's tradition or this rider has been around for a long time. So like it, like we, we can't have it both ways, right? It has to be one or the other. Yeah. I, I think the fact that it was so short too was, was like three seconds, right? I mean, it didn't, the actual puppy paws did not impact the bicycle race, but the UCI commissaires did in this case. And I think that, that, that strikes people the wrong way. But, and, and this all I, 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 this all comes back to the fact that, and we have the same conversation over and over again, a lot of this stuff comes down to, I feel like, uh, maybe interpretation to a sense. Like, y- yes, like the fact that she only was in that position for a few seconds, like certainly didn't change. It, it wouldn't have mattered if she was, or if she was or was not in that position for three seconds, right? Um, and the fact that that rule is written the way it is, and they really, if they rigidly enforce the rule the way it's written, have to disqualify her, then that tells me that the rule isn't written well. So, like, if, like, it, what, what if someone just like inadvertently goes into that business position for like one second? Does that rider get disqualified? Like, does, I, I don't know. But if the rule is open to interpretation, then it's a bad rule. Uh, Cycling Ireland actually brought in this puppy pause rule about two years before the UCI did, um, just for you know racing within Ireland, and the rule then was that you know first first time you adopt a puppy pause position as a warning, and second time I think was disqualification from the race. But you know straight away my sort of loophole mind said, well that's okay to do it once uh, until I get a warning from the commissaire, <laughs> which. <laughs> person who would well, think, I don't think I don't think you I think every would, I would, would think, think the same way. thing like yeah. if you if you know that there is a tool in your toolbox that you can use even once without getting disqualified I would use it why not mm-hmm. That's like but if you if you miss three three uh random tests then it's a doping doping violation and like no one is like, oh great. Well then I oh God, I don't want to open that. Nope. Close it back up. Close it back up. Oh, no. Close no. the can of worms, please, what? Abby. No, it also like, but it also really, really sucks for Audrey because this is now her very first ever oh dear, uh, crash in the back of the field. This is now her very first world tour victory on paper, but she didn't get to throw her arms in the air, she didn't get to celebrate. Um, she's a rider who's been in the Peloton for a really long time and she's basically always been a domestique for better riders and, or for riders that have more extensive victories. And so it's, it's a really a shame for her as well. I mean, would she have won if Voss hadn't been disqualified? I don't know. We, nobody knows, but for the fact that she has this win on her Palmaris, but it didn't actually get to win the race is yeah i don't know i feel i feel sad for her uh nobody will remember in a couple of years time when they look at the results they'll see her name first and everybody will have forgotten that Voss was disqualified so that's in a few, really in debatable. a few years time that that result will will be nah. worth um everything it should be for uh cardo but what i was going to say there and i really hate to make sort of comparisons to other sports i know we do this quite often and i don't like doing it but i want to just bring up like in, in football, if something happens off the ball and the referee doesn't see it and doesn't put it in his match notes post, post-match, post it's my understanding then that, you know, the the football association or who, the governing body for football in whichever com- country this has happened in can't actually go back and retroactively punish a footballer for an infringement off the ball if the referee hasn't spotted it. 
But if you think about something like offside, which can influence a match there and then, and the referee spots it, you know, right there in that second, the game is stopped, and you know the ball is given back to the other team and, and restarted. And I think that's sort of you know for something as short as Marianne Voss probably paused in, in in this race, you know, a whole three seconds, which had no impact on the race. I think if the commissaire doesn't see it there and then and doesn't react to it there and then, yeah, and it clearly hasn't influenced the the actual final result of the race. It should be a similar situation where you know it, it's sort of not not forgotten about or not ignored or whatever, but just if the commissaire hasn't seen it in that moment, and it's really such a minor infraction like this is, I think we should be able to just move on and, and let Marianne Voss keep the keep the win. I know I'll probably get a lot of kickback for that, but I think I think the point I'm making you can you can see where I'm coming from. No, I mean I, I'm I'm not going to ding you for that attitude, Ronan. But I but again, it comes back to what I was saying earlier with the fact that if 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 such a minor infraction really wouldn't influence the race at all, then that sort of thing should be written into the rule. Mm. But again, I guess the difficulty is, you know, do we write into the rule that five seconds is okay and then everybody starts using five seconds? <laughs> but if if the rule is about safety, not so much about how it impacts the race, then I don't, I don't know if those, yeah, I don't know if that works. Because isn't the rule about safety? It, isn't yeah. it not about so getting getting in and out of the puppy paws is probably more dangerous than anything in which case it doesn't matter how long you're in so there. then she should have stayed in the puppy yeah. paws all the way to the finish <laughs> <laughs> once she had gone into that position yeah, I, just I, stay I, there i don't think that yeah I don't, I don't think that the final decision is wrong i just think it took too long i think that that's where i come down on it it's like if if they'd done something in real time that would have been fine. But I, I do kind of agree with you, Ronan, which is like if they didn't spot it in real time and they were not able to essentially fix the situation quickly enough to prevent Voss from going on to really probably dramatically alter the, the outcome of the race, then at that point, that's sort of the commissaire's fault and you missed it and you got to just let the race go at that point. Um, I guess it feels slightly different because she won. <laughs> but... Even so, I mean, if she hadn't won, then we wouldn't be talking about it. It just would be a passing like, oh, Voss got disqualified. Right. Well, we should move on. (laughs) I don't think there's a good solution to that. Speaking of safety. Speaking of bicycle race safety uh, or lack thereof, we had a pretty spectacular and terrible crash in Burgos over the weekend. Uh, Who wants to talk me through this one? Uh, well, I can give you a real brief. Uh, basically, there was a downhill with six, seven hundred meters to go, and a speed ramp within the final five hundred meters of a professional cycling race, uh, which caused a huge crash. And anybody within the organization or the UCI who would have seen that speed bump should have known beforehand this was going to cause a major problem. So, um, Long story short, there was this speed bump within the five and five hundred meters. It caused a, a pile up about four riders back in the bunch, took down countless riders, uh, lots seriously injured, uh, and three riders in front of the crash went on to claim a one, two, three in the stage. And I think they it was one of those where they were the same sort of thing where they were a bit like, the, the, is this really a win? A little bit embarrassed about what had happened be you know how how they'd how they'd managed to come to that first second and third three young Bavisma riders um but the real talking point is obviously just you know the the organizer's decision to 
put the finish exactly where it was. Like the, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was. It was a kind of finish I don't think we would see in a you know a, a club race on a Wednesday evening around you know locally here. You know, it, it, it's it, it, at 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 every level, everybody would have recognised this is gonna this is gonna cause a major problem if we have this sort of obstacle within the final five hundred meters of a of what's of what was always likely to be a you know a bunch sprint finish. I don't know. Back in my Villanue's days, we used to do a lunch ride, and the, the final sprint of the day was about 150 meters after a speed bump, and we all we were all fine. So I think it's probably just on the pros at this point. They should just learn how to ride their bikes better. You gotta absorb it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, I mean, it's just insane. Like, there's supposed to be a person from the UCI who goes through finales now, right? Like, there's there's like a safety dude. I think it's a dude. Is it? Was it still a? Um, What's his name? This former sprinter, the Aussie guy. It's the UCI. It's always a dude. Alan Davis. It's probably a dude. <laughs> wasn't it? Wasn't it Alan Davis for a while? I, I don't know. I'm just thinking of an Aussie sprinter. <clears throat> that was who I was thinking of. Uh, but I don't know if he's still doing that. Uh, I don't. I don't know exactly who was supposed to be doing this. But there is a person that is supposed to be doing this. Uh, so how do you how do you drive the last 500 meters of this and be like, yeah, that's good. That, that seems fine. I just don't, I fundamentally don't understand how something gets through to this point. I mean, I, I have to imagine that at some point somebody is like, maybe this is a bad idea, but the organizer turn, turns back and says, well, we've already sort of arranged permits and you know, this is where the finish line has to be. And there's no other way for us to do it. And they, they say it's too late and they just roll with it. Right. And that's maybe the the real fundamental problem is that, even if something is identified, is it actually changed? Philippe Gilbert, who's the well, one of the riders reps to the UCI, had some pretty stern words this morning, basically calling calling out this as, as completely unacceptable uh, and demanding that that rider safety be be well put at the forefront. I think, unfortunately, you know, him just sort of yelling about it is not really going to do anything, and until riders more strongly either unionize or you know get together in some way uh we're not going to really see any riders unionize that's exactly the (laughs) haha it's never going to happen but but you know like all of the all the directors for example they all do a pretty close recon of almost everything right they use velo viewer to to look through finales they you know, they know wind direction the whole way through. They, they know a lot about the course these days and they would have known this thing was in the finale before the race started. And so at some point you also have to just look at the teams and be like, listen, if you all see this ahead of time and you decide to race anyway, then at some point, some of it is on you. Not all of it. Clearly, clearly it's the race organizer in the UCI that is, is their ultimate responsibility. But the teams also know about this. It's not like they come into these these finishes completely blind and they need to put their hands up before the race starts and say, we're not doing that finish, right? Like that that's the only that's the only way you actually get change here. It, Philippe Gilbert yelling about it on Instagram is not going to do anything. You need teams to stand up and say, we won't race this finish if you don't change it. Gilbert's um, it's time for rider safety to be, to be taken seriously, quote, is a little like it was time a long time ago for rider safety to be taken seriously. I mean, Amy has been working on a rider safety piece since the beginning of the season. And like, it's not been published or even written because she just keeps adding to the list. Like her <laughs> list is so long at this point. 
And like there, there are roads in the Tour de France. We were talking with some of the women that were racing the Tour de France femme of Egg Swift. There were roads in there that they're like, this would never be put into the men's race. Like it was actually quite dangerous. And then, you know, you turn around and talk to one of the guys that races the Tour de France and they're like, no, we do have roads like that. Like when Primo's crashed, was it 20, was it last year, 2021? Like the road was covered in gravel, like loose rocks, tarmac covered in loose rocks. Like it's easily could have been taken care of beforehand, but I mean, it, rider safety has never been a thing that the UCI is really concerned with, uh, as far as I can tell. <laughs> I think we should put a, put a, a call out to any race organizers also that, you know, it, I, I understand as well that pr- probably the town that hosted that finish had, you know, maybe paid some amount of money to have the finish there. And as part of that, they maybe wanted it on a specific street within the town and that, but you know, it, it, I know I know there's someone within the UCI whose job it is to check finishes, but this finish should never have gotten to a person within the UCI because the race organizer should be saying, "Well, here, look, we really want to finish in your town, and that would be really nice. But if we finish it here, there's going to be a huge crash, and we're going to get loads of bad publicity for the race, and nobody is actually going to mention your town at all. <laughs> so maybe we should move it to this other street where there is no speed bumps, uh, and everybody looks better for it. Um, that you know, and, and you know, as far as, you know, writers coming together and teams coming together, you know, there's always going to be one writer or one team who say, no, we want to race because the more teams who don't want to race, the more chance that team has of getting a win or something. And, you know, if, if all the writers well, coming together only- on the ground doesn't force them to come together before something like that happens, I guess nothing will really and if there's only one team left in the race and that speed bump is no problem, right? You just ride over it. <laughs> but like your lunch ride. <laughs> uh, we actually, I'm not kidding about that lunch ride. I, I, I remember going on a, on a, I think I was like 21 or something like that, doing a lunch ride with Zach Vestal and Ben Delaney and sp- sprinting over speed bumps Whoa. into the finish on an open road with cars. And was like, what are we, what are, what are we? What are we doing? I was just about to ask, was the speed bump the most dangerous thing in that sprint? No, no. (laughs) Ben Delaney was the most dangerous thing in that sprint. (laughs) I love you, Ben. Uh, (laughs) I've been near a lot of Ben Delaney crashes, actually. Uh, You guys remember when he he exploded a Mavic Arsis front wheel? No, 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 no. Anyway. Back to the podcast. I watched that happen. That was fun. Thank you, Abby. See, Kelly, it's not just me yelling at you to keep you on track. <laughs> no, this is Abby's job. This is why we have her on the podcast. Pull us back. Pull us back. Pull you back. All Pull right. you back. Pull me back. That's because you have, you've got 12 minutes before I will be no longer available. <laughs> oh, well, that's perfect. We'll, we'll go off and talk field tests then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have one more thing to talk about in the racing world. Well, not one more thing. We have a couple more things to talk about, but they're all one subject, which is it is transfer season. It is silly season. Uh, as of August 1st, teams can formally sign new riders. They can do some trades and transfers and things like that. Uh, and so, you know, we've been keeping an eye on on sort of the big and important ones. And there's a there's a post up on the site. I believe it is called... Actually, I know it's called because I have it open right now. All of the transfers you need to know about updated as they come in. And Johnny Long and some others have been 
well, updating the major transfers as they come in. There's some there's some sort of particularly interesting ones, I think, that we're going to touch on briefly here. We don't need to spend too much time on this one, really. But the first the first one that that kind of struck me uh, as unusual was Dylan Tunes to EF. Was it EF? Why does it say EF on this? Yeah, no, my sorry, my notes are. I was like, that's not right. <laughs> Was Dylan Tunes to Israel Primatech mid-season? So he he up and left uh, his Bahrain Victorious team and is off to Israel. And a mid-season transfer is just quite unusual. In fact, uh, we 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 generally see maybe like one a season or less. I think the last sort of major one I can think of was Rowan Dennis, who has sort of made a made a bit of a habit of doing this. I think he's done it a couple different times. Although Ronan, you pointed out that. One of them was not really a midseason transfer. He just sort of up and left and made himself an amateur for a while, right? Well, he won the World Time Trial Championships, but he wasn't with a team at the time. So it it was. I think I think I heard uh, overheard him on one of the uh, post time trial parties. Someone referred to him as the best amateur in the world. <laughs> anyway, kind of unusual to do a midseason transfer like that. It sounds like he was just tired of all the sort of. Other stuff going around Bahrain Victorious, and I think maybe chasing a bit of a paycheck, if I had to guess. Abby's fingers are itchy. I mean, yeah, Israel Premier Tech is in panic stations at this point. Like they're one of the teams sending sending teams to all of the sending their top riders to all the tiny races to try to get points because of the relegation system. So I would put my money on that they paid a lot of money. For Dylan Toons and all of his points to come over to try to hopefully avoid relegation, which at this point seems kind of inevitable for them. Not to go back down the UCI rule rabbit hole, but uh, it is, no. if, if I remember right, it's highly unclear whether or not a writer's points transfer with them to their new team or not. It's I think it's one of those that's kind of open to interpretation, if I remember right. It's a couple of months since I looked at this. But I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if Dylan Toons doesn't actually carry his points with him to his new team. And only the top 10 riders on a team ha- gain points. So if he doesn't bring his points with him, the chances of him being able to make a meaningful dent in Israel Premier Tech's total points haul over the next couple months is really quite low. Uh, that said, you'd think they would have done their homework on this one. And he's certainly a rider who will get a lot of points in a normal I'm season. sorry, wait. Did you just say you think Israel Premier Tech would do their homework on a rider I or something? Would because hope they so. signed former Tour de France champion for an absolutely ridiculous amount of mo- sum of money when he can barely finish a race. Like, no offense to Froome, I'm a big fan, but <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> valid argument <laughs> in opposition. <laughs> Uh, you would hope that at least they read the UCI rulebook uh, before they would do something like this. I think either way, it's a it's a real good signing for next year. And the team have gone on record and said that they don't really care about the the points system. That you know they they have a strong sponsor and they have a strong belief in where they're going and um, whether they're world tour or not, they'll do the races that they want to do. And yeah, they they come out with a few statements to get during the tour. So either way, yeah, Dylan Tunes will be. A big signing for them going forward, I guess. He'll definitely win some stuff. They could send him to the tour of Langkawi, and he'll just get all the points. 
Uh, we'll do a relegation update maybe maybe next week. We'll get Johnny back on. Uh, there's some other funny things happening around that right now, like Movistar literally going to the Tour of Lankawi. Um, and Alejandro Valverde has apparently said that that is his like, sort of final mission before he retires is to keep Movistar in the world tour, which is a, li- a little bit sad and slightly hilarious. Uh, other kind of notable signings. This is actually one that we heard about quite a while ago, but was formally confirmed this morning, which is young up-and-coming talent Zoe Backstead to EF. Right, Abby? Yeah. um, She signed on as kind of a trainee earlier in the year, and today they announced officially that she will be joining the team. Um, It's a really great move for EF, and also she's obviously a multidiscipline athlete, and with Cannondale as their bike sponsor, they'll be... They'll be thrilled to have her doing the cyclocross and mountain bike scene if that if she so chooses to do that. So it's an awesome move. And um, I think she would have been a, a rider that teams like Trek maybe would have been interested in as well. So it says a lot about the program that EF is developing over there that she would choose that team to to go to. There's a couple other like major moves on the women's side. Um, that I want to touch on super quick. There's Lorena Weavis to SD works is a really interesting one that we talked about on freewheeling, whether or not that is a good move for her. The podcast was split. Half of the podcast thinks that is a bad move because she will no longer have a lead out train and thus no longer be dominant in sprints and half of the cop podcast, including me thinks it'll be great because she'll develop into kind of a, a more rounded rider than just sprinting. Like they'll take her to more than just sprints. Cause she can do more, but SC team DSM kind of, did I say, yeah, team DSM kind of only takes her to, to sprinty races, but then she won't win as much. So I don't know. It's a toss up. Um, and also Uno X, which when it's a brand new team for this year, uh, and they have a lot of young riders on the team and the only kind of seasoned riders that they have are Hannah Barnes and Julie Leth. They are picking up a lot of older kind of, um, veteran riders to pilot their young riders and Anoska Koster, the former Dutch national champion, who's been on teams with Voss for a really long time. She's going from Yumbo Visma to Uno, Uno X and uh, former world champion Amelia Amelie Diederichsen is also going to Uno X, which is an awesome get for the team, I think. Uh, she's Danish, so for a team that's got a Danish slash Norwegian sponsor, it's a really big deal. And um, I think she'll do really great things with the youngsters on that team. In addition to the Stefan Gerstallion is also headed to Uno X on the men's side. Indeed. Yeah. Huge news for Ian Trelor and Mad Dean. <laughs> Ian is His very biggest excited. fans. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's uh that's enough of our very brief transfer roundup. I mean, frankly, transfers deserve a podcast all their own at some point. There's enough going on, but we'll we'll kind of wait for everything to settle. A little bit before we do that, uh, sort of brief mention of our friends and colleagues over at Vela News. They've been doing a phenomenal job breaking a number of these transfer stories, particular the editor in chief over there, Dan Benson. Uh, so if you're if you're the type that wants to follow this stuff minute by minute, VN is a pretty good spot to to go check out. Now, let's get into 
today's nerd nugget. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Let's get to field test. Now, obviously, the real meat of field test is not going to be brought to you via a podcast. Uh, And certainly not via this podcast. That's That's what we have nerd alert for. But we did want to talk, well, just about the way that we put these tests together and some of the interesting things that, that came out of them. Um, I really loved uh, in particular, a review that's already up on a $800 road slash maybe gravel bike, uh, which is now apparently on sale for $500. five fifty. Five fifty. That's amazing. Uh, anyway, w- 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 James, we do these field tests a couple times a year now. Uh, and the whole idea is to pull together a whole bunch of bikes, roughly in the same kind of category, um, and just ride them all kind of back to back to back and go somewhere interesting and, uh, yeah, basically do more testing than we could do in a shorter amount of time, uh, sort of under normal circumstances. We brought in some other interesting folks to do the testing. I'll, I'll let you take it from here. Like, well, how did this, how did this test come, come together? Where were you guys? Uh, and yeah, what, what what were the constituent parts of this thing? Well, usually what I try to do for field test, um, it, it runs anywhere from like 10 to 12 bikes typically. And usually what I try to do is I kind of like have some questions in mind that I want to answer. Um, I mean, of course, one of the main goals is to just review bikes that are either like new or up and coming or popular or whatever. That's always important. But uh, one of the questions I wanted to answer was with um, with – basically every road bike coming with disc brakes now and more and more of them having quite generous tire clearances. But one of the questions I wanted to answer this time around was whether or not one of those quote unquote road bikes could also serve real double duty as a gravel bike. Um, And so clearance for 700 by 35 mil tires is pretty common now. Um, And looking back, it really wasn't that long ago at all that actual dedicated gravel bikes were coming with 35 mil tires. And even now, a lot of like gravel race bikes come with like 38s and those aren't really that big. Or like the first Diverge, I think the max tire size was like 36 or 38 or something like that. And like the first small, the first Trek (laughs) checkpoint that, that uh, Trek ever came out with came with 35s. Although it was, I mean, it was approved for a much bigger tire, but it came with 35s and that was a very common size back then. And that was only like four years ago. So what do we, what do we get in? What were the, what was the list? We had a whole bunch. So, um, we, I wanted to focus on, uh, kind of more the value end of the spectrum because we do cover an awful lot of expensive bikes at cycling tips. And the reality is that's not what the bulk of people actually buy because I don't know about you, but I don't really have like $8,000 to drop on a bike at the, you know, whenever I feel like it, it doesn't really happen. Um, so we had uh, three bikes were a little bit more expensive. We had a Cannondale Synapse Carbon 2 RLE. We had a Lauf uh, Seaglow Weekend Warrior uh, Wireless. Um, we had a Lightspeed Titanium Bike. Those were all like uh, around like four to five-ish thousand dollars US. Uh, but everything else was 2,500 or less. And most of them actually were well under 2,000. Um, and then, yeah, the cheapest one, as you mentioned, was that Tri-Bend RC120. It's a house brand from uh, that French sports mega retailer, Decathlon. And at full retail, that bike was 800 bucks. And yeah, it's currently on sale through Walmart uh, through walmart.com for $550, which is quite a steal considering that bike. We had really, really modest expectations for that thing. And I mean, it's- Because it's 500 bucks? <laughs> well, yeah, like it's 
For sure, it's not perfect. Like there are a couple things that I think could have been done better really at no additional cost. Um, but by and large, that bike was really good. I mean, the review, like I said, the review is already up. Go check it out. Um, Triban, T-R-I-B-A-N. You can go find it. There's also, there's like a, a sort of a field test landing page somewhere on the website. And the stuff is all in the in the tech section of cyclingtips.com. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I subbed that review uh, and just really enjoyed it because it isn't, the type of bike that we have historically reviewed but you could tell that you all kind of came around to it like you like you said you kind of had low expectations but you got on it and yeah there were some some small issues the the micro shift shifting uh wasn't everyone's favorite created <laughs> created divergent opinions <laughs> uh but uh, but overall uh, a bike that was perfectly serviceable and enjoyable and you know, you guys described it numerous times as sort of like a great first bike, uh, but it could even be beyond that, right? Like, I, I mean, it's a good enough bike that, uh, you know, probably not something you'd want if you were like going to be go real, be really serious about bike racing, for example. Uh, but for almost anything else, I, I don't know. Because fine. And you it, could it, race it. You, I mean, you, you could add, race anything. You really. add up. Well, yeah, obviously. But I mean, yeah. So the bike was kind of heavy, of course, as you would expect for for a bike of that price range, but. Yeah, one of the things that I was telling you about earlier was uh, answering the question of if road bikes could serve double duty as gravel bikes. That Triband comes with, uh, they call it 28 mil road tires, and the actual measurement was close to like 26-ish, um, which was a little bit of a bummer. But um, as part of this other part of the field test testing, um, we installed 35 mil wide Schwabe G1, um, G1 RS tires, like it's kind of like their new gravel race tire. And uh, the Triband actually has clearance for 40s, I believe. Um, so those 35s fit just fine. Um, and like we rallied that bike pretty hard on a bunch of trails and dirt and gravel and stuff. And that bike was a blast. Like it was super fun. Like and one of the things I was thinking of was that bike was, I feel like, legitimately better than some dedicated cyclocross race bikes that I had raced back in the day. Really? <laughs> I mean, that's uh, like looking at the geometry chart. I was actually like, this is kind of what I like in gravel bikes. It's solid. <laughs> like, yeah, like the front end is basically like pretty traditional road geometry, but then they stick a, a longer rear end on it. Yeah. They got longer chainstays yep. and longer wheelbase. And so that kind of, you got sort of a nimble front end with a, with the stability that comes from just a longer wheelbase and longer chainstays. And it's a really, really super fun combination. We've ridden lots of gravel bikes, particularly sort of the older style gravel bikes that were like that. And I always really liked them because you can ride them on the road and they, f and they're super fun, but they are capable enough off road or on, on, on poor services to, to get to get you through. I, I, like I said, I looked at that geometry. And I was like, that's, that's kind of spot on. Like I wish more, I wish more higher end bikes would kind of replicate that. I've, I've watched a video that you put out on the tribun. I haven't read the review yet, but the thing that struck me about it and, you know, given the price point of the tribun as well was, if I think back to when I was buying my first gravel bike, I wasn't really sure, was I going to ride all that much gravel? Was I going to get the use out of this? How much should I spend? And at the same time, I was sort of justifying spending a bit more than I wanted to because the gravel bike could double up as my winter bike, so to speak. And this bike seems to be like, well, here you can have, you know, you can get a taste for gravel. You can have a bike that you can use on the road and it's not going to cost you. It's probably going to cost you less than anything else that you can find. Um, and, and, and maybe we'll just 
give a lot more people the chance. You know, it, where, where you guys live, gravel is accessible. There's loads of it. It's it's fairly big. But where where I am here, it, it was it was sure you dipping my toe into the unknown, and I was like, is this going to be a huge waste of money? Uh, and certainly, had that bike been about back then, it it, it probably could have made that decision quite a lot quicker. No, it's, it is a great little bike. Like, had that been my first road bike back in the day, like, I mean, think, granted, this was like back in the Mesozoic area or something like that. But I mean, the, the, my, my first road bike in comparison to this thing, like this, this bike is world, world's better. Yeah. It's like eight speed, two by eight, right? Two by uh, eight. Yeah. It's like tubeless compatible wheels. I mean, yeah, you have to add like valve stems and sealant and tape and like your tubeless tires, which ironically in the case of this bike would add like 20% to the cost, but, um, <laughs> but, I mean, but all this stuff was really pretty well thought out aside from the crank, the crank arms were like oddly wide for some reason. Uh, we have no idea why. Um, but like everything that was on there was pretty, was pretty solid. Um, and then I've also, since that review and the video went live, um, uh, we've heard from a whole bunch of customers who have bought, uh, either that specific model of Triband or ones that are pretty close to it. And um, everyone has also said that De- Decathlon's customer service, at least for them, has been stellar. So that that's really good to hear too. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the major concerns that you raise and that is very valid is that like it does very much depend on who built this thing. Oh yeah, 100%. Too, right? Because, you know, you're talking about a, a box store bike and the person building it might be really good at their job and might be very terrible <laughs> at their job. And so... You know, if you are purchasing something like this and, and you're not a super confident home mechanic, probably worth taking it to another bike shop just to get it checked out. But, you know, then you're then you're looking at adding, again, sort of significant percentage to the cost because even 50 bucks to get the bike checked over is is a tenth of the entire cost almost of the of the bicycle at that point. But probably worthwhile to make sure like the brakes work and handlebars are attached properly and things like that you know you've got those mechanical disc brakes that can be a little bit finicky to set up uh yeah just worth 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 uh passing it off to somebody who knows what they're doing yeah i mean perhaps uh, yeah Uh, another thing we learned from field test in general too is just this this specific one i feel like especially is just you got a lot of room to play with when you when you have an expensive bike um there's there's just not a whole lot of places where things can really go wrong um, but when you have to be much, much more judicious with where you are putting your money, if you're a product manager for this company, um, then th- there's there there are a lot more places for things to go wrong. There's um, a lot more a lot more evidence where things can where where people can kind of get a little bit more creative or maybe have some oversights that sort of thing. Um, and honestly, as from from a bike reviewer standpoint, I find the less expensive bikes are often more interesting because there's just more to talk about. Um, like another standout from this from this bike test, I feel like was that um, that new Salsa Journeyer, uh, which we got in as a with a pretty lower end spec. It came with a um, SRAM Apex One uh, mechanical group set, seven hundred C. That bike was eighteen hundred dollars US, so certainly more than the Triband, but still like well well under two thousand dollars. And that bike was killer. Like that bike was one of the most fun bikes that we had in in the whole group. Like everyone had a blast riding the thing. It was super fun. Salsa has been crushing the game for a decade plus at this point. Like, and they're they're they've been ahead of the game as well. Like, they were some of the they were one of the first brands to like really do gravel bikes. Uh, I don't know who the do you know who the like head product manager over there is? Not now. I, mean, I know I know who it used to well be back then, but um, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, they, yeah, they've been they've been on their game for a little while now for sure. Yeah, those bikes are super fun. Who did you have in this field test? We had some uh, we had some well. 
now on cycling tip staff. Yeah, quite a bit actually. So it was myself and and Dave Rome, um, sort of uh, two of the two of the usables for for a field test. Um, and then uh, I actually brought over uh, Betsy Welch over from Bella News. She's their senior editor and just like an absolute gravel crusher. Um, and then um, Aiden Baird has been our uh, freelance videographer for quite a long time. And uh, his girlfriend actually is Ellen Noble, who a lot of you know from cyclocross, uh, cyclocross racing, and she's kind of on sabbatical right now, I would say. Um, and uh, I, I had a fourth slot to fill for, for testers, and I was actually wondering if she would be available. She was, uh, she obviously has a wealth of experience, and she's really, I know she's really good on camera. She knows her stuff in general, like kind of knows her tech chops, um, and she was available. And we were able to bring her on as a fourth tester for this. So the, that that was our crew, and it was it was a really fun group. It was good. You guys were in steamboat. We were not the worst two weeks of your life. Well, <laughs> we were only there for like six days or something. But still, it, ste- right. steamboat is <laughs> steamboat is certainly better known. I th- I would say nationally and internationally for the ski resort. Um, but the riding there is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the, the road riding there is incredible. Like there's just no, no, uh, shortage of just absolutely gorgeous routes that you can do. And then the gravel there is phenomenal. So, um, their quote unquote gravel is a lot like what we have. Uh, well, I guess I would say what you used to have, Kaylee, uh, what, what, what we have in, around Boulder. Um, but it's a lot, a lot of like super buffed out dirt, uh, really fast, um, really consistent, uh, really fun. Uh, but then they also have a lot of rougher gravel. We took them, took the bikes into um, like some kind of like more like mountain bike park area, like kind of like multi-use trails, single track stuff, um, where Ellen definitely proceeded to drop all of us as she was just like airing out these little like little tabletops and stuff. It was pretty fun. <laughs> um, but we we had a pretty good mix of terrain for these bikes. It was good. Well, head over to cyclingtips.com or the YouTube channel, actually, uh, whether you want to read or watch the reviews. Or both. We've got lots more coming. Or both. Yeah, whatever you want to do. Bunch are up already. Lots more coming. Go check them out. Uh, I I love the field test. I think it's a really fun way to get a bunch of reviews out the door really quickly um, and just sort of like wrap your head around whatever the sort of current space is with, with whatever topic we're on, which, like you said, sort of can road bikes uh be gravel bikes and also can gravel bikes under three thousand dollars be fun absolutely i think that's it for us today thanks for listening everybody we'll be back next week with another episode of the cycling tips podcast bye-bye bye-bye